Welcome back to the Toledo Matters Podcast. This is episode 18. With you, as always, is your host, Bob Tucker, your co-host, Danny Woodcock, and your engineer, Nathan Lewis. Just wanted to thank you guys for coming back and listening to our show and our many ramblings. We really appreciate you guys. Just jump right into it. Did you guys do anything good last weekend? I was out of town for work, flew back in, took it easy. So no. <laughs> um, it was my birthday last weekend. I turned Woo! 33. Happy birthday. Um, I went to Hensville on Saturday night with my parents. And my nice. Wife, and we went to Nine, the new fancy Heck restaurant. Yeah. It was very cool. The building is amazing. They have the uh, You'll Do Better in Toledo store right attached to it. Right. The rooftop bar, which was closed because it snowed eight inches um, <laughs> in spring. And then that's really awesome. You can see the game from up top, and it's pretty cool. Um, the food was good. It was a little pricey for right. my means. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's. I know Joe had mentioned they weren't trying to compete with local businesses, yeah, so maybe that's, that's by, by design there. But uh, yeah, it was pretty good. Danny? Uh, I was fortunate enough to... We had a great opening day party down at Communique. And then from the opening day party, had some tickets to the game, bounced over around Hensville, hit up Home Slice for a little bit, oh, yeah. saw the game. It was practically snowing sideways. So yeah, it was crazy Shout out weather. to anyone who stayed at the game. You guys are amazing. <laughs> the true diehards. <laughs> the Mud Hens freaking killed it. It was like 8 nothing in the seventh inning. They did so good. Awesome. Um, yeah, it was just a great time. And then the Walleye on Friday absolutely killed it in overtime with a sick goal to nail the conference championship. So shout out to all of our sports teams for yep. just killing it. And so that's the starting the playoffs, right? The yes, Wally it is. getting into the playoffs. Yep. Awesome. We're about to take over. Get hashtag. your tickets and support them, man. Let's go down there and make some noise. Let's do it. Our fish, our fight. And then <laughs> all weekend it rained and snowed, so, so the mud hens got rained out all right. on Unfortunately. Saturday and Sunday, which means I have eight tickets to any games I want to go to the rest of the season. And that's pretty Who cool. are you going to take but your podcast buddies, <laughs> exactly. right? I, like I say many times, I don't have any other friends, so let's do this, guys. And then uh, Sunday, I started level two of improv. Oh, cool. So, I saw a little post about it or something yeah, on Facebook. Down at the Toledo Rep, level one, two, and three now just started again. We had a sweet show on Monday at the distillery. That was pretty fun, man. Awesome. I'm really liking Get the stuff into it, huh? going on. I'm glad Nick Morgan came on our show. Thank you, Nick. Really <laughs> yeah. appreciate it. Is Nick teaching the level two? or No, we got a new guy named Clint. He's from Second City in Chicago. Cool. And uh, he's, he's pretty good. Awesome. Like, so what do we got coming up this uh, this week? Um, well, tonight, actually, Thursday, at 5 p.m. at the Andersons, they're going to be hosting a wine tasting event. So while you're buying groceries, you might as well sample some of their wines. And they, taste. they're usually pretty good. They have a bunch, always have pretty much the best wine selection in town, maybe other than uh, Joseph's, possibly. But. <laughs> no, I think, and, and even if you go to like their little discount pile of stuff, you usually can right. get some good stuff. For yeah, cheap. yeah, definitely. Perfect. Tomorrow night, Friday, the cast of Impractical Jokers from True TV, one of my favorite TV shows, will be at the Stranahan Theater. Uh, they'll be there at 7 to 10 p.m. with their comedy troupe, The Tenderloins. If you haven't seen that show yet, you got to check it out. Those guys are hilarious. And then Saturday, obviously, the Fresh Market downtown. Don't eat all the good donuts because last time I showed up. and they Farm, were The out. Farmer's Market. The farmer's Market, yeah. yes. Thank you. And then Second City, the comedy troupe, will actually be performing at the Valentine Theater right across the street from my apartment. So I got all some right. tickets to that. That should be fun. I need to find a date to go with. Um, and then this, <laughs> yeah, right. And then this one is actually pretty special to me. The University of Toledo's Dance Marathon, Rocketthon. It's a 13-hour dance-a-thon benefiting our local Children's Miracle Network Hospital, Mercy St. Vincent. Uh, every year we raise over $100,000 for the kids, and we put on a lot of events where we bring in the Miracle families, Miracle kids, and have a lot of fun with them. 
Uh, this year, we got a lot of support from the community and from the faculty. We're real excited. We're trying to break 130 grand. Uh, if you guys have a heart, go to rockathon.org, <laughs> donate some money. This is pretty cool. Like, I don't get to see many kids grow up other than my own family. And to see this one, one miracle child in particular, Sarah, go from however old she was when I met her at like four or three, and to see her kind of growing up to be a healthy young lady. It, like, I saw her for the first time in two years. Awesome. weeks ago and i was like no way are you sarah no way they grow up fast huh bob yeah <laughs> yes they do and then uh next week is toledo beer week so all around town there's going to be beer specials check out toledobeerweek.com or their facebook page and then thursday 421 um startup toledo will be at the prometica wildwood campus in the offices of prometica innovations so if you guys need some fun stuff to do check out toledo there they are we got them all <laughs> Cool. All right, Bob, who do we got this week? Today we have uh, Brian Kennedy, who's a, a really good guest, I thought. He, he was the executive director of the Toledo Museum of Art. Yep. Really knows his stuff about art and was, I thought, a really good interview. So, yeah, I think it went well. Um, Great accent. Yeah, yeah. This is our series of the uh, British Isles right. starting, <laughs> starting today, as you'll find out in a couple weeks. But uh, anyway, uh, I thought he was great. And without further ado, here's Brian Kennedy. With us today is Dr. Brian Kennedy, the Executive Director of the Toledo Museum of Art. Uh, Dr. Kennedy, thank you for coming. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah. And uh, from that accent, I'm guessing you're not a Toledo native, right? <laughs> no, uh, I was brought up in Dublin, Ireland. Okay. Which is a great, great city. I, I vacationed there once and had a great time. <laughs> it is a great city. It was a... It was very walkable, which is what I really enjoyed. About right. It, but. Well, it's a big city. I think it's, I don't know whether it's a million and a half, two million people now, yeah. but the center of the city is totally walkable. In about half an hour. And how did you get into the art world? Well, uh, it was sort of a bit of circumvention, but I, I have always been interested in the history of arts from very, very young. And uh, I started to collect postcards of works of art when I was 13. And my father was an architect and it was quite an artistic household that I was in. And my mother is very musical. And uh, I had an aunt uh, send me a postcard and said, you want to collect them? And so I started to do that. And a short while later, then I started to go in at the age of 14 um, to talks at the National Gallery of Ireland about art history. And uh, by the time I was 18, I'd wanted to be an architect like my father, but I instead, I had about 5,000 postcards at that stage. <laughs> and uh, I started to study the history of art. So I'm one of those incredibly fortunate people where my hobby became my life, uh, not immediately, but um, I've, uh, I've had an extraordinarily happy life that way. Now, when you were collecting all those postcards, did you have some favorite artists back then that have remained favorites throughout your life? Or? Not so much famous favorite artists, but favorite works of art. Sure. And I developed a habit back then, um, this is a long time ago, uh, where I would put a postcard up um, for a week and uh, I still have one in my office today, and I, I change it every week. So I, it's something that catches my eye for whatever reason. Um, on the other hand, I did have like 40, 50 Rembrandts, 40, 50 <laughs> every, Picassos. I mean, and I had written on the back of them what they were and the yeah. dates and everything. So that's the way I sort of educated myself. Uh, it's not something people do so much now because obviously we're all digital. Yeah. But uh, um, it was a wonderful way to get to know a lot about uh, the history of art. When, when did you come um, to the States? I came to the United States in... Uh, 2005, um, I went to Australia in 1997, 
Cool. And I was in Ireland before then, except I had a year in Brussels in 1983. And were there, those all art museum positions? Or how does one become, for example, the executive director of the Toulouse Museum? I imagine there's some stepping stones along the, along the way. Well, the conventional way would probably be you'd study history of art like I did. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, then become a curator and gradually work your way through positions in, in an art museum. For me, however, I mean, I was in Dublin and there weren't that many art museums. There was the National Gallery of Ireland. Um, the Irish Museum of Modern Art um, was just opening uh, as I was finishing college. Um, and there were just a number of major galleries around the country. But uh, I joined the public service after college and um, I did my master's degree, my doctorate and I had started to get involved with uh, the Art Historians Association and giving lectures and talks and whatever. And uh, one day I was approached in the street um, at the age of 26. And I had been working in the Ministry of Finance and one of the areas I'd looked after was the National Gallery. And so the human resources manager, the personnel manager of the National Gallery just told me, well, do you know Raymond, who was the director assistant director had been promoted to director and he said you know his job is open would you be interested <laughs> and uh, so i landed into the national gallery of ireland as assistant director and uh, with a job offer off the street <laughs> right and well i did my interviews and whatever but obviously yeah, sure, they sure, thought sure. that this was sort of something useful because i was on the other side of the fence really where the money was yeah and so i spent an incredibly happy eight years uh, before i realized that if I did want to stay in art museums, I could wait until Raymond retired, I think, which was another 20 years later, um, <laughs> or, I, or I could leave. And uh, I'd been approached by the, the National Gallery of Australia uh, about the directorship there, which was kind of an outrageous sort of thought. Now, what city is that, in Canberra? Or? It's in Canberra, yeah. yeah. The national institutions are there. And it's a very major institution. Um, and I'd gone to Australia, as indeed, I think about 10 times to Japan and Wow. Um, to America with exhibitions. I mean, if you want to see the world, joining an art museum is a pretty good way to go. It's <laughs> awesome. Um, and uh, so in Australia, I'd given talks and uh, met people. And um, so they thought that it'd be interesting to ask me to interview there. And uh, to our great surprise, I got the job. Wow. Was that a bit of a culture shock at all, going from Ireland to Australia? Or? <laughs> in some ways, but, you know, in others not. Australia is actually the most Irish country in the world, except <laughs> Ireland. And percentage-wise, about a third of the people have Irish background there. Sure. I mean, as you know, most went as convicts. Oh, but, that was but, factual. I thought you were just yeah, saying, yeah, but, pretty you know, Irish over there. A lot too. of people did as, you know, police and soldiers <laughs> yeah. as well. But um, in any event, uh, there have been lots of waves of immigration. So from that point of view, absolutely not. Um, from the point of view of the culture, and uh, um, uh, in terms of particularly Aboriginal Australia and the scale of the country, you know, 22 million people in a place the size of America. Right. Um, that was really wonderful. And of course, I got to travel all over the country all the time. So it was it was just marvelous. I became an Australian citizen. So did my kids. Yeah. Wow. And um, I, I guess I'm curious. I don't think I've ever seen this is probably just me not having the knowledge, but Australian Aboriginal art. Did, did you have any galleries or anything of that of there? And what is that? What's that stuff like? Well, the National Gallery of Australia has the major repository in, in Australia. And um, so Australian Aboriginal art it represents the work of Indigenous peoples and throughout the entire continent. And it's very different in different areas. For example, they paint on bark up in the northeast oh. and at the, at the top. And from the 1970s on, uh, they paint in, in acrylic on canvas in the central deserts, in the western deserts. Um, I traveled every year, um, you know, sleeping out 
in a swag and you know uh, looking at the stars and watching uh, out for snakes yeah that too <laughs> what is a swag uh, a swag is like a canvas bag and uh, you you have okay. a mesh sort of thing over your face and then you can put a cover on if it, it rains but basically it's gotcha. like a sleeping bag that's made out of canvas that you sleep on the ground in okay um and so we'd go several thousand miles out into the desert and uh, <laughs> that's awesome. uh, usually at easter time so right you know right around now, now yeah uh, when the moon was full and the stars were out and um, went to uh, Aboriginal communities all over the desert and um, I collected Aboriginal art. Um, we made uh, major collections for the National Gallery of Australia. And then a few years ago, actually here in Toledo in 2012, um, I was thrilled that uh, we were able to bring a very, very major exhibition called Crossing Cultures uh, to the people of Toledo. And so the, the range of um, from burial poles uh, from the north uh, to wooden objects to uh, paintings were on exhibition there. That's great. And that kind of ties in, I guess we're skipping on the head a little bit, but a similar but different uh, exhibition you currently have about uh, North American Aboriginal art. Right. right. Well, when I came here in 2010, I you know, spoke to the newspapers and whatever and said things that I hoped that we would do and that we would be able to broaden the range of what people had experienced in Toledo Museum of Art, which is a very classical museum and with wonderful range, but didn't collect Indigenous art. And so uh, we pledged that we'd do that and the current exhibition, Indigenous Beauty, which is truly beautiful indeed, um, represents the art of the entire country um, of America, uh, but representing Native peoples uh, throughout and, and the huge range of their Indigenous art making, which is so varied, just as it is in Australia. Yeah, we went, uh, my family went on the, the opening, and mm -hmm. my, my almost four-year-old loved the, the dancing that, that you had, uh, <laughs> of the, the Native dancing. Yeah, you got a big wonderful. kick out of that. And, yeah. and in, in college, I took some kind of bizarre five-person class on um, uh, the linguistics of certain Alaskan native tribes. Wonderful. <laughs> so yeah. very niche wow. sort of thing. Yeah. And and I was really blown away that you had some art from uh, the Tlingit tribe, right. which mm -hmm. like... I hadn't heard that name since college. It was, right, it was yeah, great. Yeah. It was wonderful to be able to have indigenous <laughs> representatives come from five different yeah. nations. And, wow. and most of them were moved to Ohio, uh, from Ohio to uh, Oklahoma in the mid 19th century. Huh. Um, and so one of our key representatives was uh, Chief Glenna Wallace, who's the first woman chief of the Eastern Shawnee who were, who were moved uh, to Oklahoma. Yeah, so she, it was she had really a powerful little yeah. speech at the beginning. She really there, did. Thought, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, it was and very... I think warm um, to thank you know us for showing their culture, but not only that because there aren't a lot of keeping places. Um, much indigenous art of Native Americans, American Indians, has been um, lost, and the, all that is retained, of course, over time, mm -hmm. um, is in museums. And then, of course, there's contemporary indigenous sure. art making as well, which is very yeah. alive. Yeah. So you were in Australia for a while, and then I think you, you next went to Dartmouth, is that right? Or? Right. I had eight years in Australia, um, which was just an extraordinary time. And um, I'd had this job, Director of the National Gallery, so it's, it's kind of like, it's a big job. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. So if you've had that, you kind of can't do anything else you want to stay in an art museum. <laughs> so um, I was approached about uh, Dartmouth College. The world of art museum directors is very small. I mean, there's four um, search firms really that deal with it <laughs> um, and so you know the people sure. and uh, so I, I came actually three times from Australia to Dartmouth and they do a very thorough job and um, I didn't really know about it um, I mean obviously I looked it up and all of that yeah, but yeah. it turned out to be um, 
just an amazing experience. It's a, it's the smallest of the Ivy League colleges. Um, it's one that was actually founded for Native Americans in the 1770s. Hmm. Um, really? But, yeah, but re-engaged that in the 1970s. Okay. Um, and uh, it's it's the one that's removed like up in, in the hills of New Hampshire. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's got a very particular culture. It bleeds green. Um, green is their color, as indeed it is mine for other reasons. But um, <laughs> it turned out to be just an amazing experience with the size of their art collections, with the intensity of the engagement in the curriculum. And uh, I had a, I had a very special time there. Yeah. I, I have some friends who went there and you know, I, I have a, you know, I love the college I went to, but they have this relationship with Dartmouth that I don't have with my college. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. still to this day, you know, 10 years later, they're still very talk about it all the time. You yeah. Know? <laughs> it's visceral. And for me, of course, um, in the world of art museums, I'd come from national institutions, which are largely publicly funded. And although there's a move for publicly funded institutions uh, that are funded by government to look for more money from the private sector, it was very important coming to America to learn how to raise money. And um, Dartmouth per capita is among the best (laughs) at it. And so it was one of these occasions where, you know, imagine if in terms of the factors of production, the one you don't have to worry about is money. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Um, So it's it's your creativity and and what you want to bring and who you want to bring uh, to the campus and how you want to infuse all the, the student body and the faculty. And the community, because the community around a college university town throughout uh, America is very, very lively and attracts people who retire there and want to have a rich culture. And we don't quite have that because I think largely UT has been, you know, more a commuter school. But I think that's beginning to happen here as we feed into the needs of our aging population. Um, And uh, Dartmouth, of course, has that hands down. And then you were there for a little while and was the next stop here? I was there for five years and... uh, our son really needed to be in a bigger school system and um, he had some learning challenges and in, everybody in Dartmouth kind of in the school system there, I mean, they want to go to the Ivy League. So <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, we we were approached about Toledo and I'd come here a few years before that um, on an art museum director's trip and I'd always known about Toledo Museum of Art. It's got an incredible name for the quality of its collection all over the world. And if you see a work of art from Toledo, it's going to be as I call it, a cracker, you know, a really great one. <laughs> and um, so when I came uh, first to interview, it just bore that out. And uh, what truly impressed me was just how warm the people were. And they were looking for what I had been involved in, really, in Australia and in Dartmouth, especially, which was like how to build community and connect community, build partnerships and collaboration and cause the art museum and what an art museum is for to be discussed and broaden the range of exhibitions and the reach that they can have into the community. So that's what we've been about really for the last uh, since And I think you've certainly done it. I, I mean, the, the playtime exhibition in particular, you know, as a parent of small children, I mean, that was... And as an adult child. Well, yeah, it was fun for me too. But, you know, I, I knew many other parents of small kids who, I mean, yeah, some of us might go to the art museum anyway, but that certainly brought, mm-hmm. I think, a lot of people to the museum that may, might not have gone otherwise yeah well you know one of the things that happens you come to a new city and whoever you meet whether the taxi driver or whatever um your barber you know they'll say oh i love the museum but frequently people haven't been there since you were a kid right, or yeah. they just don't go there and the reality about art museums is in america i mean they tend to attract more money than other kinds of institutions and um, it costs an awful lot of money to run them but also to buy artworks um, but about a third of the people never go 
<laughs> and about a third of the people go every few years. Right. And then about a third of the people go a little or a lot. And some people go a lot, a lot. And um, so, you know, we have about a third of our population that visits, but we still have this extraordinary visitation. I think it's the second highest per capita in the country. Wow. Um, last year, 445,000 people in the calendar year um, went to the museum. And, you know, we're a city of 260. Sure. When we're not a zoo or we're not, a, we're not an outdoor place, we, it's, it's more a, an education facility. Um, so building the community was really like trying to change the nature of the exhibitions. And the first one we did where we said, we're going to do something that people really love that would cause them to come to the museum if we did it. And so that was the art of video games. Oh, yeah. 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 And then Love we followed that. that with the... with That the was great. Time. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I was there for the... When the guy made his opening um, remarks for that. And that was really, really interesting. I, I liked that whole thing. Great. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, mean, I learned a lot as well, yeah. of course, you know. Um, and then with Playtime, we just really cracked it open. I think it was... Um, we had 135,000 people. And, wow. and so it was a different way of engaging the museum. And we found that grandparents were bringing their grandkids. And it reminded me a little bit of when we did um, a big photo portrait show when the Manet exhibition was on um, a good few years ago. And we had um, hundreds and hundreds of portrait photographs of people in the community. So people would come in to the museum to stand in front of their photograph to be yeah. photographed <laughs> and then walk around the museum. So it gave us a cue to how to handle this. And I mean, obviously we've just had the sneaker exhibition and mm -hmm. uh, the Plensa exhibition, Plensa is a great, great sculptor, will be sort of like playtime outside um, this summer. And Sweet. we're beginning to put in playgrounds on the campus and, um, you know, to cause um, people to think differently about the whole place. And if they come for lots of different reasons, then they will build on the audience that we traditionally have had and, and see that it's really incredible museum. And when people see, for example, the Peristyle Theatre. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And that had been closed and it was my ambition to open it. And it took a couple of years, but then we opened it during the day and people can just walk in and have a look. And their jaw, everybody's jaw drops when it's they see the Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have the best concert hall um, in any art museum in the country, that's for sure. But one of the best concert halls anywhere. It in itself is a piece of art. Oh totally, my gosh. Totally beautiful piece of art. And you don't have to go there for the symphony. You can go there for the Kentucky Derby, which I've you, done a few times, which you, is great. Wait, fun. what? Right. You <laughs> yes. go there for the Kentucky Derby? <laughs> That's going to be on very soon. Yeah, we started this group called 2445. I was very yeah. dim about it. I wondered what that was until somebody told me that it's actually our street address, um, <laughs> um, 2445 Monroe. But of course, it was to capture people in more or less in that age group. Right. And uh, that's really become a market thing for other organizations now because we've got quite a few hundreds of uh, yeah, the, people. Yeah, they have, they have some great events, including, yeah. Danny, you should go to the Kentucky Derby Party. It's yeah. down. It's, it's so down. Fun. Have yeah. a mint julep, wear a, wear a fancy, well, I guess all right. the girls go wear there? fancy hats. I, I haven't gone in a couple of years. Okay. Kids, yeah. get, kids get in the way a little. Bit. I think <laughs> I think some some of my friends in my apartment went with Adam Levine. Oh yeah, right. me some yeah. We'll yeah, put a little bet like down a on a horse and you know, right. check it out. <laughs> well, we'll have it this year. We had a murder mystery recently, which was what? hilarious as well. Where, How do I get on the invite list? <laughs> what? Circle you two, be four, in circle four, five. two four four yeah. five. Just yeah. join. I'm only twenty three. I got. I'm not no, you're you. okay. Don't worry. <laughs> We'd worry if you were sixty three. Okay. <laughs> So how, how do you join the two? two, two just go onto our website and just, you know, go look up Circle 2445. I look under membership and uh, it's all there. Yeah, okay, so, cool. yeah, very easy. I think also when, when, you, when you renew your membership or you become a member, it's like a little option you can title. Yeah, you can just yeah. tag that one as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I, I remember, I think it was 10. I looked this up today before this. Uh, one of my early memories of childhood is is my parents and my dad's aunt, who who is a nun, uh, taking me, but not my younger brother, because he wasn't big enough yet, I guess, 
to a Rubens exhibit, like oh. a traveling Rubens exhibit at the museum, which is kind of a strange thing to take a 10 year old to, but I, I, that's like one of my early formative memories. Of, traveling what? It was a, you know, one of those, tra- it was a traveling exhibit of paintings by, by Rubens. Who's, so, who's oh, so this was still, I thought sandwiches. It was not sandwiches. No, not Rubens, <laughs> no, Sir Peter Paul Rubens, he was, he was actually the first millionaire artist and he was a diplomat in the 17th century in, in, in Flanders and he traveled to Spain and Italy. But uh, it was the biggest exhibition that the museum has ever had. We had, I think, nearly a quarter of a million visitors. And wow. so it really put the museum on the map and the catalog was like Jeez. two inches thick. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it's interesting you say that because that's one of the you know hardest you know fondest memories that people have. Of and I was museum. ten, and yeah, I remember so that'd be like but everybody had to go, or yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah or maybe it's ninety four. Was, like early. was 90, it ninety four? Okay. Well, when I Very did good. my googling yeah. today, it was okay, ninety four. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's well, that was the year of the the blockbuster. I mean, um, there's a lot of competition now for people's time, um, but still, if you do something significant, people will come. I just saw something in the paper yesterday or today about a ladle to a punch bowl. Can yeah, that's a fun that? story. Um, yeah. You know, Mr. Libby, Edward Drummond Libby, who founded the museum with his wife, Lawrence Scott Libby, she was from Toledo. Um, he was a great glass manufacturer and that's why we got the museum. He came here from Massachusetts to set up a glass company, Libby Glass. And uh, in the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, uh, he had the biggest building to show off all his designed glass. And it was the year of, you know, great lead glass. And so they made this punch bowl. And we don't know how many dozen glasses there were. We have actually 23. And we don't know whether there's a missing one or whether, in fact, there were 36. <laughs> sure. But it's a huge, uh, incredible piece of glass, one of the great pieces in world history. But it, it had, we knew, a ladle with it. But the ladle disappeared. And um, the uh, punch bowl came to the museum a couple of decades later as a gift. Um, but uh, in about, I don't know, 10 years ago, we were first let know that there was a there was a ladle. And so the ladle was sent to the museum and we were able to compare the facets on the glass with the actual bowl and decide, yes, this actually was uh, the ladle for the bowl. And uh, recently we were able to conclude uh, the purchase of it, which we um, were very fortunate to get the support of uh, George and Leslie Chapman to, to buy the ladle for us. Um, and so now it's on show in the museum. You can go and see it, the beautiful ladle for the, for the bowl yeah. with all the glasses. Dogs are excited about the ladle. Yeah, yeah my they, wife's coming. They out. like whatever might be in the bowl. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I remember seeing the, I mean, the bowl and I assume the ladle now, they're in the glass pavilion right. the museum. And I yeah. remember seeing those before. Yeah. So it's the 10th anniversary of the glass pavilion. And, uh, you know, it's got so much attention to such a beautiful building. Been to the museum probably six times and never once walked over to the glass. Oh, pavilion. you need to. Because I never thought it was open oh, until after I went to the hip hop exhibit. I went mm. back to work and someone was like, Yeah, you should go check out the glass pavilion. And oh, I was it's like, great. Oh, there's nothing in there. No, there's something in there. Watching always. the guy blow the glass live yeah. and stuff is, is super awesome. Yeah, every, two o'clock every day, the free glass demonstration. So, yeah, it's really You just cool. got to be like me and other people of their curious mind. You just got to push any door that you think <laughs> looks like a door, you know? So, when I'm in the museum <laughs> opening doors, I shouldn't be. I'm well, you there. can try. It just, you know, if the alarm goes off, you'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before we had kids, like one of the things we loved to do, I, I don't know if you guys still do this because we haven't looked into it recently. You, you did Wine by the Glass, mm-hmm. which was Friday nights in the summer or something. You, you go and you you get a flight of wine, basically, 
and you watch glass blowing demonstrations in the, in the glass pavilion. We, we do that fun. still. It actually sells out. And, and oh, it's great fun. Yeah. On um, Pink Martini's on in the in the uh, <laughs> symphony tomorrow, um, and we're doing a. a a demonstration of uh, martini glasses. So the history of the martini glass with martinis. Wow. And so it's uh, cool. <laughs> nothing like a bit of glass and a bit of uh, something great. to go into it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know a, a big push recently at the museum is visual literacy. Do you want to, for folks who have no idea what that phrase right. means. Can yeah. You, can... Well, simply put, um, I have not met somebody who tells me that they were actually given a class in how to see. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, kind of amazing. I mean, we take in 90% of our information with our eyes um, and we're taught to learn by studying digits and letters. I mean, that's basically literacy. But in actual fact, before people ever learned that 500 years ago, um, we saw optically in a different way. We saw in a way that we could scan. You'd walk in a room and you'd see it all at once. But when we were trained on digits and letters, we would focus on one thing at a time. Then we blink and we look at something else. So we've actually been caused to see perspectively in a very different way to what is natural to us as humans. I mean, it's very interesting with video games. Video games have not been proved to actually change the brain. I mean, the brain changes over millennia. Sure. But one thing that has happened is that vision has improved in the periphery. So your peripheral vision, because kind of the enemy is always coming in from the edge, right? <laughs> right. Um, so it's kind of the opposite to optical yeah. perspective. Anyway, simply put, um, what we're doing with uh, visual literacy is teaching people methods of how to see. And uh, it's fascinating when people say, well, but I know how to see. Yeah. I said, no, no, you know how to look, but to really see and understand what you see is actually a trained methodology. Hmm. And so we've developed ways of doing that. And we're actually doing rather well with revenue from courses that we're offering, particularly to business and into safety management. Oh, wow. um, but we've also opened uh, after we've after training all of our staff and our guards and our ambassadors and our docents and everybody over the last number of years. Uh, this past summer, we, we launched um, public classes um, so people can sign up to do a course in visual literacy. And the one we offer um, is about it's six times two hours. And I mean, the idea of like, why would I do that? I mean, yeah. And we find people might spend, you know, half an hour in front of one work of art, whereas they would never think of sort of spending less than half an hour on a book. I mean, you actually start it and you read it yeah. and you finish it. Mm -hmm. But when we look at an image, we tend to look at it, spend a couple of seconds, and then we look at something else. So yeah. we haven't actually learned how to read the image because the image, um, just like stained glass windows in cathedrals, it, it was the full text to people who were pre-literate in terms of uh, digits and letters. Anyway, it's a big subject. Um, in terms of the digital world, it's absolutely the way to go. Um, I'm, I'm I'm totally convinced of it. Um, I'm a bit evangelical about it, so I'm a bit yeah. fanatical. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's going to take a long time to unwind 150 years of an education system that has been <laughs> devoted to digits and letters. Yeah, yeah. And when you say digital, as far as just teaching instead of showing like a PowerPoint with text, showing a PowerPoint with more visual stuff to actually look and take in and things like that. Yeah, I'm talking about that, but I'm also talking about the way we access knowledge is actually by learning numbers and letters. Okay. Whereas sensory learning is the way we access knowledge is by learning how to use our senses. Okay. So this is a totally complementary way to otherwise a textual learning, which is, mm. of course, the font also of, of digital literacy, which, of course, is based on digits and letters. And um, so... The sensory learning tends to be pushed to the edge of the curriculum. I mean, mostly your, your music and arts and whatever, they're kind of squeezed out of the main curriculum and to right. the edges if you want them. Um, whereas, in fact, uh, to be truly human and truly sensory and to use our human senses, which is the way we take information, we should be trained in how to use our senses. 
Um, and so, you know, we've got a lot to do. Yeah. Does that ever discussions ever carry over onto like artificial intelligence stuff learning that way? Because I know with like Watson, um, they're doing stuff to try and have it be able because right now computers are not very good at looking at a picture and determining what it is on the picture because all they see is, you know, bits and stuff. So um, does it ever carry over into any of that? Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, the logical outcome of our knowledge system, the way it's currently based, is artificial intelligence because the computer is able to do a lot easier accessing information than we can ourselves. Sure. So, I mean, you know, you just look up your phone for anything that you previously had to go to the library to find out. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, who's going to run the machines? And it has to be the most sophisticated machines on the planet, which as yet are not technological. They're humans. I mean, the capacity of the human brain is so great in capacity of any computer that we have. And that's not who can win the chess game. It's actually who learns how to emote who can actually interrelate with people. Mm -hmm. The reason we're the highest form of animal is because we've learned more than any other how to socially communicate with each other and develop sophisticated ways of relationships. So one thing I'm, I'm always curious about uh, when I'm at the museum is what's the process of acquiring a new piece of art? Like how do you decide? I, I'm assuming it, it probably differs. There's probably a number of avenues that new mm -hmm. art comes into the museum. Right. But could you speak about that a little? Absolutely. I mean, I'm always fascinated because it is somewhat mysterious to people. How do they just end up there? Well, yeah. sometimes it's <laughs> like auction catalogs come in and, you know, we go to the auction and we, or we have somebody go and buy something. Other times we're offered them by people who have them. Um, we recently, just to give an example, we bought an incredible mask, incredibly rare mask from the islands at the very top of Australia near Papua New Guinea, which are called the Torres Strait Islands. Wow. And there are only, only a handful of these masks known. And uh, I talk about this because it was publicized. We normally don't talk about prices, but when you buy at <laughs> auction, everybody knows what we paid. So yeah. I think it was total like 1.8 million or something like that. And um, anyway, um, that was done. And we were told about this mask coming up at Christie's in Paris. And so we had to research it um, deeply. And the way that we did it, because you don't want to announce yourself, especially if you're a museum, because you're presumed to have a lot of money. Right. Um, then uh, drives up the you, price. Yeah. And, yeah. So um, auctions these days uh, are available on the internet. So I had it live on my computer in my office. <laughs> and I was there with Amy Gilman, who's the associate director. And so I'm on the phone and I've got somebody on the bank of phones that I can see on my computer in Paris, right? Yeah. And uh, in... Uh, in less than a minute, in nine bids, um, we won. So it's the <laughs> wow. kind of, that way is the fastest way to spend money that I know. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like the NFL draft. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of an exciting way. But the other, most times it takes um, quite a few months before it goes through the process. And everything has to be agreed by the art committee of the board. Um, and so museums tend to be slower buyers usually, unless like this case, we, were, we had got approval I mean, the auction was on a Thursday and it got approval on the Tuesday from the art committee, which happened to be meeting on the Tuesday <laughs> yeah. to go to auction to a particular price. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a lot of regulation. Provenance is really, really important because we want to make sure that, you know, nothing had been illegally removed from a country. And these issues have become very major in recent times. Yeah. yeah you see those in the newspaper, you know, mm -hmm. places have to return art because it was yeah. taken and stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we've done that if, actually four times in the last five years. So we'd never done it before, but and we're recognizing the, the changing nature of international yeah. borders and regulations and laws. Yeah. So does the art museum own all the art that's in there or is there stuff that kind of comes in and then it will go somewhere else after a certain amount of time? So nearly all the works of art, including the Museum of Art, are owned in trust um, by the Board of Trustees. 
So it's a private museum. Um, so, I mean, that's a bit of an issue with some other museums where the city owns the art. There are some works of art which are on loan to us. Um, for example, we've got an incredible painting by Paul Cezanne of Still Life uh, from the Art Institute of Chicago that's in one of our major galleries at the moment. But generally speaking, um, our exhibitions, of course, are borrowed. So they're yeah. also all subject to... You didn't to, own all those Jordans? <laughs> we didn't own all those Jordans and we don't all the, own all the Native American art either. Um, so insurance is a big issue for us and security is an even higher issue, of course. Well, you've been, at, you've been in Toledo for, for at least six years. Uh, in that time, have you, you know, I'm sure you've explored the community and stuff. Other than the museum, have you found maybe something that's a little hidden gem that you think other people need to know about? There's lots of things. I mean, when you're Please not say from the here, metro parks, so. <laughs> yeah, sure, the parks are wonderful. Everybody says Everybody that. Says that. <laughs> but you know, and extending further, I mean, Grand Rapids, Ohio, is pretty incredible what mm. they've done down there, and the Rutherford B Hayes Center in Fremont is pretty great. And um, the birds that are about to arrive, the warblers uh, for the there Big we American Birding, are astonishing. Um, it, and you guys have an upcoming bird exhibit. Right? We do. This yeah. is the third one. We've yeah. done one every second year. And uh, this is the first one of an individual artist. His name is Fred Tomaselli, who makes these incredible paintings of birds. Um, but, you know, there's so much here. I'm out, you might imagine, I'm, I'm a professional beggar, right? <laughs> um, I'm out three, four nights at least a week. And yeah. um, I'm going lots of different places. And, you know, where people have art, you go and visit them there as well. Um, you know, the botanical gardens, there's, mm -hmm. there's so much here and the arts environment is great, but sometimes my favorite things are, are, are different. Um, and I love what they do at the mud hens. Um, oh yeah. Definitely. I think that, you know, it's one of the great nights out and, um, what's happened with Hensville, I think is really great. And we've been very much partnering with other institutions. Um, some of them arts institutions like the Toledo ballet, we worked with them on a Degas and the dance exhibition, uh, around nice. Christmas time. Um, but there's, there's so much, it, you know, you'd have to look for it. I mean, Toledo is not self-evident and particularly because the suburbs have boomed while they've drained the inner city. Sure. We have to give back to the inner city what is its true heart and home. And given that the museum is there, we see ourselves as an absolutely vital part of connection, um, particularly with downtown and what's happening there. And so we're involved in, you know, the 22nd Century Committee, Destination Toledo, um, we're very much a driver in the Toledo Area Cultural Leaders Group, which is 27 members now. We meet once a month um, and have done for years. And so we've all got to know each other. And that's not just the arts. They're the cultural organizations like the Metro Parks and the Botanical Garden and the zoo and so on, the library. Um, and to try to really find a way to promote tourism. We really haven't had a sense of promoting ourselves as a tourist destination. People say, tourist destination Toledo? Right. Well, yeah, actually, we've got incredible things that people Absolutely. can come to see. Yeah. So building, and affordably as well. Affordably. Quite affordably. And building the hotel infrastructure is really important. So the, the changes that have occurred in Destination Toledo, where the destination institutions are now driving that organization, is, I think, uh, terrific. And Rich uh, Nachezel and, and his colleagues there um, with the Lucas County Commissioners, I think are really taking a very different view. Um, and that it shouldn't be a hidden gem or secrets or what's in Toledo. I mean, just like Grand Rapids, Michigan has created a whole sort of view that they're an art city. Yeah. And, and yeah. I got to tell you, we, I mean, they're good, but we've got more. <laughs> um, go. And our you museum is pretty better. incredible. So yeah. um, I think we, we've got to not be shy about it. Though I think we're beginning to realize I mean, what makes a success. And, uh, you, you know, just uh, I was down at the Mud Hens when they had, uh, you know, I don't know, 250 breweries offering different kind of beers. And so how do you make a city into a happening place? Well, encouraging this sort of, creativity across different kinds of um, 
foods and drinks and you know Beer. making it yeah and song and dance and, <laughs> and different music formats and and clubs and so i think that's what these places are doing and we had that and then we kind of bled it out and yeah. uh, and now i'm very excited about the determination of um the younger generation here i mean there seems to be a group of people who are really determined to say heck you know we're going to make this place fly and why wouldn't you i mean it's so easy to drive around and mm-hmm. um, property is relatively inexpensive mm-hmm. and anybody who's lived in a major city for a while knows it's a headache and yep. i mean it's great but it's also stressful and um so there's a lot going it can be for, dangerous for as well it can be dangerous and you know we've some of our problems but you know it's just not on a scale where you have to really worry about it and i think that's the the sort of that's an Australianism, no worries, mate, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and, and I think that, you know, we need to think about Toledo like that. No Absolutely. worries, mate. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to use that slogan a lot. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think Danny, you brought some oh, trivia. This is my favorite part. Danny's been, Danny's been trying <laughs> so to introduce. I'm, I'm fairly new to the city. I've been here five years and I want to uh, learn more about the history. So this is a perfect reason for me to research the history is to prepare some Teton trivia questions for our guests. Oh, we'll, yeah. We'll try to help you out because we have not been previewed to these the, questions. So, All right. You're going to get at least one, and it's this first one. <laughs> what is the tallest... Bu- these are all focused around downtown Toledo. Um, what is the tallest building downtown Toledo? Well, it's the fifth, third building, I suppose. Yeah. One yep. Seagate. One Seagate. One Seagate. Yeah. I'll give you a bonus point if you tell me the second tallest building. Well, what used to be called... The fiberglass tower, probably. Yep. Yeah. Now the tower on the mall means only 11 feet shorter. Is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. That was a. Owens, yeah. Illinois had to show Owens Corning, who was boss. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, uh, they put 11 a, feet taller. Right. They, one, put a, one they put a story. tower. There's like a, there's like a little yeah. antenna on the top. A helicopter landing pad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, number two, on the corner of Adams and Huron, uh, it's actually right outside my window, there's a fairly large open parking lot. But on February 16th of 1929, that parking lot was a big, beautiful building capable of holding over 1,500 people. It was designed as a French Renaissance and atmospheric style, and it had three manual Wurlitzer pipe organs. It was beautiful, but it was demolished in 1965. What was that big, beautiful building? The Paramount Theater. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Bob yeah. looking at me like, I had no idea. nobody yeah. would get this. <laughs> this might be the, the, the first time the trivia questions all get answered correctly. We're on a roll here. <laughs> all right. Um, one government center was designed by Minoru Yamasaki. He also designed a few other famous buildings. Imagine what one government center looks like and think about what other buildings look like those. You're asking another building designed yep. by Yeah, what is guy? another building designed by him, sorry. <laughs> or it could be two. You, you told me the answer to this. I knew. I, I have no idea. Did he do the Twin Towers? Did he? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's right. Knocking yeah. this one out of the park. Right? Yeah. Um, all right. This one's going to be great. In 1901, when the Toledo Museum of Art was founded, what downtown <laughs> building housed those temporary exhibitions? Oof. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer this one. <laughs> was it actually? A, it had a name, did it? Yeah. Yeah. It did. I double checked and triple checked. Was it Morrison or Madison or? Oh, it was it? on Madison. Yeah, right. it's the Gardner Building. The Gardner Building. Yeah. It's just still there, I think. It is. Yeah, yeah. That's a what tough one, Danny. There. That's. Yeah. Yeah. I think P- <laughs> I think that's the building PJ's Deli is in. Okay. Uh, yeah. 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 Yep. And, I don't know why I've got of a mental blank that I I know the museum obviously was founded in 1901, but it doesn't get going <laughs> until 1912 when we opened the big one. Yeah. There were two different places before, weren't there? Yeah. yeah. So this episode is going to air in what about a month? Yeah. Yeah. Is there any um, upcoming stuff at the at the museum that was that is going a month or so out? 
Well, the big thing is the, this open-air exhibition of sculpture and then inside the museum, in all the area that the sneakers were in recently, we're <laughs> going to have more sculpture. And it's a really, really kind of diaphanous uh, mesh-type material um, of sculpture, extraordinarily beautiful. And I can just see people just coming in to be photographed in front of these sculptures there. Can you tell us a little bit about what the what the outside sculpture is going to be? Right. So Jaume Plense is really the most significant Spanish sculptor of today. And a few years ago, we put these two identical heads. It's called Spiegel, which is the German word for mirror or identical. Are those twins. the two white? Right, which are yeah. lit at night um, yeah. on the junction of oh, yeah, Monroe and yeah. Collingwood, yeah, so right very, down the end of our cool campus. And so there's a whole lot of different work by Plenza that will be all over the campus and lit up at, in the night. It'll always be summer, so the night will be shorter. Oh, um, be and awesome. then inside the museum as well. And he's coming to give a talk. And we're going to have like food stands and playgrounds and lots of things on the campus. So yes. it becomes almost like a, an urban park. Awesome. That'd be a lot of Great. fun. Is yeah. there going to be people like little art booths and stuff selling art like that type of stuff or no? At different stages. I mean, in the weekend of June 4th and 5th, we have the Old West End Festival again. Absolutely. And so yes. anybody who hasn't experienced that, I mean, it's really extraordinary. It's just uh, yeah. so wonderful. And yeah, so, so much celebratory. Fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so that so goes nice. all around. Yeah. Come up on my porch. Like, okay, yeah. great. Strangers, we're friends. We, yeah. we brought up that a few times on yeah. the show and ho hopefully everyone <laughs> listening will, will go. Definitely. Yeah. It just makes you feel truly proud of the architecture, mm -hmm. the pride that people have in our houses, all the gardens so well done and flowers and, and just the joy that's on the streets and the parade. It's just great. It's yeah. a great time to find old records for very cheap <laughs> which is nate's that's, that's purpose, what i yeah. do well and then last year you dj'd a party right yeah yeah i did i was i got yelled at a few times for being too loud but <laughs> that was one of the Good secrets word. mark folk of the arts commission very early on i said it's like show me some place i didn't know so you know he showed me like san marcos which has yeah. a restaurant is sort Absolutely, of yeah. double tripled since then yeah and then various places where they had you know stores of old records which toledo has a lot of mm -hmm. um, and then again like, you know, walking into art studios down in the warehouse district and you know you walk into a place that seems totally anonymous and then you find way back in there's this whole studio or there's an artist who's very well known abroad um to uh, david eichenberg for example i remember walking in him and um, he makes these incredible portraits and He's uh, above Jack Schmidt's uh, uh, store with Sean Messenger. So there's all sorts of people around that, again, on my point, just there's the door and, and they're, they're just behind it. And, um, you know, when we found, a, you know, design graphite and build the, the com oh, company that build uh, you know, models, you know, we wanted them to do a model of the museum, which we have in the, inside the door of the museum. My son but loves that's, that. Yeah, that's like <laughs> just a roller door, right? And then yeah. behind the roller door, there was this huge, big... Uh, um, thing being made for Tokyo Disneyland, right? And then there was our model. And you sort of say, nobody has any idea. So right. that's the whole point about the creativity of people here. There's a lot of people doing great things here in Toledo. And it's our job really just to tell people about it and get it out there and, and really go find these extraordinary yeah, things. for sure. Well, Dr. Kenny, thank you very much for being on today. It's been my pleasure. Ours too. Thanks a lot. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the Toledo Matters podcast. We hope you had a good time and we hope you join us next time. Thanks a lot.